In Brooklyn with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello. It's uh, it's been a hell of a year today, Wednesday evening, starting with uh, Mayor de Blasio's 10 a.m. press conference. Is that 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or was he not clear on that? Well, it turned out to be a de Blasio irregular time. <laughs> and so... It's always not a good sign. He's late, but when, when, when you get real late, it's 11.30, it's 12, it's 12.30. You sort of have a sense of what's coming. Uh, finally, Andrew Cuomo, author of a book about his coronavirus leadership, decides to have his own televised press conference at 1.30. Still no word from the uh, mayor at this point. He says the positivity rate in New York is 2.5%, says a bunch of other stuff. As he's saying that, the word comes down officially that what we feared as de Blasio was delayed is so. And a tweet goes out, uh, school buildings are shut down again as of tomorrow. Since we've hit the 3% citywide rolling average positivity rate that uh, the mayor has indicated would be his threshold for doing that and that he reached in negotiation with the UFT, the teachers union, as they were reluctant to open schools in September in the first place. New York, of course, being the only big city system in the country that reopened the school buildings to start the year. So schools closed. Cuomo maybe knows this, maybe doesn't. He seems to indicate he does not as he's talking. Um, he's clearly under the gun and, and, and aware that information is shifting quickly. Um, he gets into an exchange with our friend Jimmy Vieckland of the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, and uh, behaves like a complete asshole, which, as my wife came in and observed, uh, that, that's what you do when you can't answer a question. Mm -hmm. I'm a little unclear about New York City schools. The other day you said this is the city's decision. They have an agreement at 3%. Today you said, well, I might have to impose an orange zone and I might have to close the schools, which an orange zone does. So what's going on? Does the city still have the ability to close its schools? Are you now taking control and saying that you have the power to make this decision? And for the millions of parents who want to know, are the schools going to open tomorrow in New York City? All right. First of all, let's try not to be obnoxious and offensive in your tone because you're 100% wrong. These laws have all been in effect for months. I've always said, we set initial parameters, and then the school district picked a percent within those parameters. New York City picked 3%. We announced the orange zone law over a month ago. I don't know if you were here or if you were paying attention, but that has been in effect for over a month. It always said, if by the state's numbers you hit 3%, the schools close. What's going on here is nothing that the law hasn't said for over a month. We then had the test out procedures. If you were paying attention, you would have known we closed the schools in New York City two weeks ago. Remember when we did an orange zone and a red zone in Brooklyn and Queens and we closed the schools? 
Don't you remember that? Okay, so don't you, so what are you talking about? How, what are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law, an orange zone and a red zone. Follow the facts. I'm still confused. Well, then you're confused. That is followed very eventually by the mayor's 10 a.m. press conference starting at about 3.30, where he says, hey, this was very hard to do because the positivity rate was exactly 3% with the rolling average. He denies, as Cuomo did in that exchange, that parents have been confused by this. Uh, I can vouch parents are extremely confused by these differing standards for who controls what. Uh, by the idea that schools are going to close while bars stay open, and by the idea that you're going to announce at the end of the school day that, hey, the school buildings are all closed the next day. Adding to all this on Cuomo's side, he says at one point, uh, if you're socially distant, wear a mask, and we're smart, none of this would be a problem. It's all self-imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, you wouldn't have a weight problem. De Blasio, on his end, is asked, so what's the plan for reopening the schools? He says, I'll get back to you really soon. Obviously, we're going to have an even higher threshold. Um, So, you know, we've been looking at this since the schools closed in March. And since they reopened in September, what's the plan for reopening? He doesn't know. Uh, He's he's going to get around to uh, telling us. uh, He said at one point, my absolute favorite, um, explaining why he doesn't have a reopening plan on the days closing the schools. um, This day seemed far off, thankfully meaning when we first came up with this 3% threshold. Uh, no, it did not uh, to anyone else, but uh, this mayor lives in a different reality. So my head is about to explode. In the course of announcing the schools are closing, Carranza, the school's chancellor at one point says, our schools have opened and have been remarkably safe, which good for you, but that doesn't come off well when you're in the midst of closing them. Um, Chrissy, have we learned anything since March when de Blasio and Cuomo couldn't get on the same page before Cuomo's sexuality, before any of this, or are we just going to repeat the same thing the second time? I think, sadly, Harry, we're looking at a repeat. I mean, these two haven't been able to get it together for a long time. And my concern, your concern, the concern of thousands of New Yorkers is that their inability to put aside their petty beef would someday cost New Yorkers their lives. And so it's one thing if, you know, they're trying to flex on one another when it comes to closing down the subway in a blizzard. Well, that's highly inconvenient, but it wasn't necessarily a life or death situation. Now we're looking at, you know, we got a glimpse of it with Legionnaire's disease. Remember when the Legionnaire's outbreak happened in the Bronx and there was mismanagement and miscommunication. But now we've got a full-on global pandemic and you've got thousands upon thousands of parents who were just like, in March, what are we doing? You had all summer to figure out what you needed to do. And then scramble, scramble, August, September, we're still trying to figure out. And now we're in November before holiday season. So we already know that like stress levels are high and these two can't get it together. And then you've got de Blasio, as I texted you earlier, pulling a Lauren Hill saying he's going to show up and then just rolls in whenever he feels like it as if nothing, as if we haven't been waiting all day for this, this man. So I think. Oh, and he said, he said that, that Cuomo did not seem to know that the schools were closing. De Blasio says Cuomo knew for sure the schools were closing. They've been talking all day. I mean, so this does not inspire confidence. No, 
I mean, here's the thing. Today, we reached the threshold where a quarter of a million Americans have died from the coronavirus. A quarter of a million Americans, right? So, and we know that those are just the records that, you know, lots of hospitals I know in the South were pressured to to say people died from other things so that they wouldn't have to classify it as coronavirus with their Republican governors, et cetera. So we probably know that more Americans have died from the coronavirus than even than a quarter million people. The fact that two Democratic politicians, a mayor and a governor from a quote-unquote blue state, can't seem to come together to figure out how to help the citizens of New York City and New York State is just, it's embarrassing and it's, it's, it's beyond the pale. And I don't know if either one of them deserve their jobs because of their inability to handle one another, to be quite honest. I mean, de Blasio is just running out the clock. This is the equivalent of like dribbling in midcourt, just like, eh. But the thing is, like, we've got really pressing issues. And I think, you know, Cuomo's written this book. What's the name of the book again? <laughs> How I Manage or something, Mission Accomplished. Some combination thereof of nonsense and ridiculousness. Um, in the middle of a global pandemic, you write a book that says, I did a great job. American Crisis leadership lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Asked about writing this in the middle of the said crisis. Uh, Cuomo said it's halftime. He also has has a whole spiel that he repeated today about how New York is the best. Um, We're doing so much better than everywhere else. We were the worst, but that was because uh, the Europe ambushed us from Europe and it's not anything he can be held to account for. It's really... Stop it. How do you know it's halftime? How do you know? today... Uh, Cuomo sexuality died once and for all. That was a weird moment. Well, I'm well. I'm so curious about 2022. The Democrats, if they want to get rid of Cuomo, they need to put up a legitimate primary challenger, someone who has electoral experience. I think Zephyr Teachout did a fantastic job at opening the door to the possibility that Cuomo has Achilles heels, plural. But because she didn't have electoral experience, I think that that made some people a little shy to really vote for her. Cynthia Nixon, I think, you know, you played a lawyer on TV, but I think there was a lack of experience and depth of policy understanding for a lot of folks. And so that didn't work out. But if the Democrats who are a little more left-leaning, who care about science and leadership and communication, if they can find someone, I'm putting up your wife after that tweet today, but if they can find someone who doesn't have an ego the size of half of the state and who can actually put people in front of their own issues. And I think one day when the book is written about the similarities of Bill de Blasio, Andrew Cuomo, and Donald Trump during 2020, that to me is going to be the real bestseller that we need to read because the three of them have so many similar characteristics that really hurt the American people at the end of the day. And it's, it's an embarrassment. One other, one other wild thing here is that the deadline for parents to decide whether or not to re-enroll their kids in in in-person classes was uh, Monday. Thursday, all the in-person classes are closing. And so my view here in a broader sense is that incredibly, de Blasio has managed to screw this up badly on both ends, that, that the kids who really need to be in school buildings, who we fought to have those buildings opened for, and what's fundamentally and has been, I think, exposed in the course of this as a system of last resort, 
which I think is going to have troubling implications for public education going forward, like those kids have to leave, even though the positivity rate inside of schools is something like 0.19%. And all the people, all the kids who had options, whose parents had options to do something else, are getting pressed, even as the schools are closing, to have their kids re-enroll. And last thing here, the issue in a lot of ways was that countdown clock de Blasio had for months looking to when the presidential election was happening and his idea that money would be coming from Washington. So in the absence of that money, and as he negotiated at the last minute and somewhat ineptly with the teachers union and the principals to get them to sign off on reopening without resources coming from the federal government to help make that safe, right? He just had to guess. He hyped numbers all summer about how many parents wanted their kids back in school. Those numbers predictably turned out to be bogus. There was a survey where you could commit to being fully remote or say, I'd like to go into class, which actually just kept your options open. So it was just an idiot test. And if you weren't an idiot or an exceptionally honest person, you said, oh, my kids will be back in in class. And he treated that like a real number. But that meant you have this math problem with how many in-person teachers you need and how many remote teachers, since the union decided that teachers couldn't do both at the same time, although a lot of schools have nonetheless sort of done it on a school-by-school basis, like the math just completely broke down. So it's just a converging series of disasters where the kids who need the schools don't have them, and the kids who don't need the schools are getting pressed to go back in, even as the citywide positivity rate is such a concern that the school buildings are closing. Um, it, it's it's really a shame and disaster. And I think it's going to discourage other systems outside of New York from reopening their schools, which I think more places should be doing, given the increasing scientific evidence we have that schools are actually a, a rather safe place to have kids. So, Harry, make this make sense for me. How is it that we have data and scientists have backed this up and have said in-person dining and bars and gyms are the known locales where the coronavirus is being spread. Schools, however, are not the locales where the virus is being spread. So why is it, and you know I know the answer to this question because as I tell my students, if ever you're curious, the answer is money. But why is it that we know that one locale does not spread the virus and three other locales do, yet we are closing down schools and keeping open gyms, restaurants, and bars. Oh, but wait, the penalty is they close at 10 o'clock. Like, at this rate, without, you know, proper... When I even think about the vaccine, it's like, we can't get these two Democrats to even get on the same page. So, like... So what? We have a vaccine. I don't even trust them to be able to disseminate it properly because they can't even walk to a a press conference and and say the same information. Like, I just I have very little faith in our leadership right now. And that just makes me so frustrated because all the evidence says one thing. And they're like, let's do the opposite. It's like opposite day. Real Goldilocks stuff. Real Goldilocks stuff is is uh, Cuomo controls whether or not the the restaurants can shut down. There are, again, real concerns about shutting things down again without more help coming from the feds, both for business owners and just for, like, service workers and New Yorkers and lots of people who really haven't gotten very much help as much of the economy has been shut down. And bear in mind that our unemployment rate right now is twice the national average. Like, th- this has hit New York really hard. And so he doesn't want to shut down business again. The mayor, in the meantime, to get the schools open, ironically enough, had to agree to this 3% threshold. To him, 
that is a sacred promise. Whereas what he said to parents and principals and others, that's like as circumstances warrant, you know, check the mm-hmm. fine print. Right. So right. the result is, again, that we're getting truly the, the worst of both worlds here. And as you said, de Blasio is going to be, he's term limited out. His wife is not running for borough president. He'll, he'll be old news soon enough. Or not soon enough, but soon. I was about to say. It, uh, Cuomo, on the other hand, you know, he's casting a very big shadow and he does not look like he is inclined to go anywhere into the Biden administration or into retirement. Uh, th- this is who he is. And, and even as it looks as though the state Senate might actually end up with that veto proof supermajority for Democrats to match the one in the assembly as, as we're getting these votes counted in late which is going to take us in one second to our guest who's got more to say about this. He still sees himself as finally the person who, who's in control and who's straddling, who's making sure that the state doesn't tip too far to the left. And politically, at least, maybe it's the opponents he's had. Maybe it's the vast power he has, much more than most other governors, both as a question of how authority is distributed in New York and, and how good he is at controlling that authority and the money. He doesn't seem like he's inclined to go anywhere. And worse of all, he seems much more inclined to say de Blasio is stupid and wrong at almost every juncture than to uh, do what's right for, for New Yorkers. That there's just th- th- this insistence that the governor finally controls, that everything he says is clear, the parents it to everyone else, even when it's plainly not. And at least up till this point, he's managed to maintain enough uh, political support in the course of that. It's hard to see how he ends up dislodged, although today did feel like something at least of a, of a narrative turning point with his uh, tantrum at reporters and and with the space between his answers and reality. Yeah. I mean, listen, where's he going to go? Right. As I've said many times on this podcast, this man's raised in captivity. So like, no, he's not going anywhere because where else would he go? What does he know? Nothing. He knows Albany and that's where he's comfortable and that's where he's the king. Right. But there are cracks in this foundation. And like, I think the, the Cuomo love from all these folks outside of New York is interesting, but we can't have many more of these instances where he's literally, you know, having a little tantrum with the press and not answering questions. We know, I mean, like, listen, we know defensive politics 101 is when you're in the wrong or you don't know an answer, all of a sudden you have an attitude. It's like, settle down with the attitude, answer the question. You can't answer the question, so you're deflecting. And now, you know, with Jimmy, who's a reporter's reporter, by the by, and he's, you know, trying to flex on Jimmy... Like, settle down. He's literally asking the question that everybody in this room and across New York State is wants to know the answer to. So that's one. There's Two. no good answer though, because it's, it's our, our our parents confused by what you're doing, and the only honest <laughs> answer is yes. Right. And he's like, No, you're confused. They're not confused. It's like, well, if I'm asking, then I'm conf- if I'm one parent, then I'm asking and I'm confused. So answer the question. But I am fascinated though, Harry, as we lead up to 2022. I know that that is so many years from now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm always curious, as someone who studied the classics and Greek tragedies, I'm really curious as to when he goes for the fourth term, if the fate will befall him that, you know, visited his father so many years ago. I mean, fourth term isn't necessarily the charm. You're making the case that in the past 12 years, I've done X, Y, and Z perfectly, right? But I need you to give me another four years to do what? With what ideas? And so, yes, he'll tout the book and how he wrote out the coronavirus. But I think that there is a case to be made to say, like, yeah, I don't think that there is anyone in New York who who knows New York better than Andrew Cuomo. 
I don't think that there is. Speaking of New York knowers, let's welcome in Stephen Romolewski, previous FAQ guest, CUNY guy, incredible map maker, and somebody who knows New York very well. Before he comes in, one quick programming note. Um, we are going to have, starting next week, uh, for our special Thanksgiving pod, we're going to start warming up for what's going to be a special project between FAQ and a group of NYU journalism students to produce a new segment that's going to give you, New Yorkers, a new sort of voice on this pod and hopefully around the city. Stay tuned for many more details on that. And with that, hello, Steve. Welcome back. Steve, I just want to invite you here to kind of walk us through some of your maps. We're going to put them on the website so folks who are listening can can look at some of them. But you always have these really fascinating uh, election maps, electoral maps, to show us different shifts and trends. And what caught my eye was a, another electoral map that had some COVID interesting stuff going on. So can you just tell us a little bit about your maps and what you do when you aren't providing this great service for New Yorkers during an election season? Sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Love being on FAQ NYC. It's a great podcast. You guys are both great. I adore both of you. <laughs> um, and uh, I appreciate your kind words about the maps. You know, the maps are partly interesting because I guess I'm able to use, you know, interesting color schemes and the like and make them attention grabbing. But really, they're interesting because they represent data that's interesting and they represent patterns that are interesting, in this case, patterns of the electorate in New York City, or at least people who voted in a presidential election. And, you know, you could do different things with the data. So we've mapped the overall number of people that voted locally by assembly district, and we've compared that to the number of people that voted in the 2016 presidential election. And so you can see where there are increases and decreases. We mapped the in-person votes for Joe Biden by election district. The New York City Board of Elections hasn't yet tallied the absentee ballots by election district, or maybe they have, but they haven't publicized that data yet. So you can see where he did well, where Trump did well. And uh, we looked at where the absentee ballots came in versus where in-person voting was. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can slice and dice the data and, and uh, show different patterns in a way that hopefully is more than just interesting, but really useful for people to better understand the voting patterns in New York City and use that as a window into neighborhood trends and population trends and the like. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Um, I teach stats and quantitative and qualitative methods, so I'm always trying to teach my students how to articulate themselves in a visual manner. Mm -hmm. uh, and your maps do that in a very sort of succinct way. This iteration, and you're doing this in conjunction with the Center for Urban Research at the CUNY Grad Center? Is that That's right. That's what you're correct. doing? And so what what are some of the maps that were most surprising or shocking to you in this round of putting things together? Sure. And I just to put an emphasis on the source of the map. So yes, I work at the City University of New York Graduate Center at the Center for Urban Research with John Mollenkopf. And um, we you know, do a lot of mapping and, and spatial analysis of all sorts of data, not just electoral data. And I should mention also that John Mollenkopf, my colleague, has been you know, mapping and analyzing electoral patterns in New York City for decades. Um, I've been doing this more recently. And in 2013, we partnered with the uh, CUNY Graduate School of Journalism 
and the Center for Community and Ethnic Media to map the electoral patterns leading up to the 2013 mayoral election. And it was really interesting, fascinating patterns. And so we've, we're not doing this directly in partnership with the Graduate School of Journalism uh, for the moment, although we love working with them. But uh, we've been, you know, mapping electoral patterns ever since and trying to, you know, see what the trends are and see what the patterns are. I guess some of the interesting things this election, uh, one was even though the absentee ballots haven't been tallied yet locally by candidate, we do know where the absentee ballots were returned by assembly districts. So we know the count of absentee ballots that the Board of Elections has published. We know where the in-person votes were for candidates. So we know who voted or where people voted for Trump, where people voted for Biden. And you can compare with 2016 with Donald Trump support, and you can see that in a lot of places, pretty much across the city, except in a few places in Manhattan, um, support for him, votes for him increased, even without counting yet the absentee ballots. So throughout most of Staten Island, uh, especially in South Brooklyn and, and parts of North Brooklyn, and even in the South Bronx, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he got more votes this time than he did in 2016. So that's pretty interesting. You know, in a, in a city where the common perception, I think, is that people can't stand Trump, there are a lot of people who like him and vote for him. So it's been interesting that Trump has centered his challenges to the results around cities when in New York, as you're pointing out, and in other cities, Trump in raw numbers exceeded his 2016 performance and uh, percentage-wise ended up in about the same place in most cities. Like that wasn't mm -hmm. what seemed to make the uh, difference. New York, obviously, there's nothing contested here in terms of who is going to win the presidential election statewide and the electoral votes. But we've had some some pretty remarkable issues <laughs> yeah. getting things counted, right, with, with, with all Democratic leadership. Uh, and we're still getting leaks now as you're putting these maps together, leaks, not, a, not official data about all of these races weeks after the election. So, I mean, you're tracking this data and sorting through it and visualizing it and dealing with this pretty frequently. Can you just explain to our listeners why things seem so remarkably <laughs> right. inept, uh, inept or at least slow? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a combination of things, I think. One is the Board of Elections functions through state law and state law requires certain things and allows for certain things. So, for example, if you vote absentee, so if you mail in an absentee ballot, you can postmark it, I believe, by the day of the election, and then it can be received up to, you know, a certain number of days later, and that vote still counts. However, you could also have mailed in your absentee ballot ahead of the election, but then shown up on election day, or in this case, for this election and during early voting, and voted in person. And so then they won't count your absentee ballot, they'll count your in-person vote. Uh, that's my understanding of how the election law, what it allows for. So, you know, the Board of Elections has to kind of sort through all of that. And it's that process in and of itself is complicated. And then everything has to be done in a, I guess, bipartisan way. They have to be Republican and Democrat 
staff people involved, and then there are watchers from from the different campaigns, and they're involved as well. And so, yeah, it's a long, drawn-out process. I don't know the specific mechanics of it, but I'm sure it could be done better. <laughs> and you can see it takes, you know, a good amount of time to count all this. And, you know, on top of that, in New York City, there's like 5 million people that are registered to vote. The turnout is much less than that. This time around, there was close to 3 million people that actually voted in the general election in 2020. And luckily, we had early voting plus absentee ballots in an effort to, number one, make it easier for people to vote and also to hopefully not have as much of a huge logjam on election day of people turning out and overwhelming the polling sites. But you have to think that, number one, the Board of Elections needs to be prepared for turnout. You know, in a way, it's almost designed to work with low turnout, which is terrible. It shouldn't be that way. We should be welcoming voters. We should be encouraging people to vote in as many ways as possible. And I think people know to the extent they're thinking about voting, they probably think it's like going to the DMV. There's going to be huge lines and a massive bureaucracy and why bother? Um, it's, you know, it's frustrating. So um, so the, the Board of Elections needs to be prepared for that. And I don't think they are. I mean, I think if everyone that's registered to vote actually voted, the board and the poll sites would just be completely overwhelmed. That's terrible. So it's been it's been an interesting set of dynamics with that. We have this new Democratic state legislature mm-hmm. that just got us early voting for the first time, which is a really nice thing. Like some of those dynamics are changing. But the uh, board of elections in New York City around the state, they continue to be like sort of partisan patronage operations of an older sort in ways that are really frustrating. I did want to sure. ask you about Long Island for a minute where – there was this idea that Long Island was going to be sort of what the IDC was, like the, the, the last bulwark against the crazy lefties of New York. And it doesn't seem like in, in congressional races and state legislative races, as we're getting results in, again, very slowly, it's playing out that way. In fact, the, the PBA just sent a tweet to one winning candidate, a, a Democrat being like, you better, you better look over your shoulder, pal who edged this out as more votes were counted. Uh, but th- those results are trickling in. Jay Jacobs, who's from Long Island and is the head of the Democratic Party, which in New York is is just uh, an adjunct of the governor's. It's not its own thing at all. But like he's emerging again as like one of the voices of the supposed uh, moderates or the center of the party. But it seems like like Long Island is maybe shifting blue and, and maybe that's going to have uh, some, some real change to our politics, or maybe the limits to how far that can go. And I'm just curious how, how you see that. It seems like that's where a lot of the action was this year. And being Long Island, of course, us in New York have, have more or less overlooked it. Yeah. So I'm from Long Island. I grew up out there, went to school out there, worked out there for a number of years. And um, just to give some historical context, not far back, but a little far back, in the 1980s and early 90s, I was very involved in environmental issues, environmental organizing on Long Island. And I grew up in Nassau County, which was the center of the Republican machine uh, in New York State. And, you know, the, the word was that in order to get a job with the county, you had to be enrolled Republican, you had to vote Republican. It was 
a lawsuit was brought against that that won. And when we were working on these environmental issues and, and garbage disposal in particular, trying to advocate for recycling and try to get these towns not to build these massive garbage incinerators, not that we were doing it in a partisan way, but that the outrage over poor solid waste policies helped flip the town supervisors to all Democratic in Nassau County for a period of time. And, you know, so it's gone back and forth, I think. Certainly at that time, there the like you're saying, the bulwark or the state Senate side, in particular, the nine senators on Long Island were pretty much all Republican. I think they all were Republican. That has changed. And will that continue to change? I don't know. Long Island is an interesting place. I mean, it's had been where people moved to to get away from New York City, by and large. Including uh, lots of NYPD officers. Yeah, right, right. Um, I know this from my family. <laughs> they, <laughs> they can't believe I you know, live in New York City. But, you know, I, I think some of that is changing. I think there's a good amount of Democratic enrollment out there, and it's not just Republicans. It's, you know, a good mix. Um, immigration, I think, is certainly a factor in changing that. Though, you know, a lot of immigrants move directly to Long Island. They don't even move through New York City. They just go right out there because they have family there. They know people there. And, and that is, you know, I'm sure helping to drive a lot of the economy of Long Island. So, you know, I think it's a process and, and uh, changing over time. I don't remember the exact makeup now, especially after the last round of elections of the Senate positions. But I would imagine there are a number of Democrats that got elected to the Senate from Long Island. All right. Well, I'm going to shift gears just a bit. Um, and Harry, are you done? Did you have one more question before I shift to 2021? Shift away. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears a bit, Steve, and jump to 2021, because you mentioned several times in, in the mapping about turnout, turnout, turnout. We've got roughly 5 million registered voters, 3 million turned out this year in the general. My big concern for 2021, not just the general election, but especially the primary, is that we're going to see such abysmal turnout for mm -hmm. an important race. Mm -hmm. And with the addition of ranked choice voting, I think that there's going to be some confusion because we haven't seen any PSAs. I actually might have my students make some PSAs <laughs> next semester. So, Steve, I want to get your thoughts on turnout and the 2021 mayoral primary race, which will be held in June, not September, which many people are accustomed to. And so what are your thoughts on sort of the suppressed turnout that we we have seen sort of trending? Uh, and do you have any concerns or fears of what we'll see in June 2021 with the primary race? Because we saw a suppressed turnout this year in 2020, and it seems like New Yorkers are kind of in a decreasing trend. Well, or is that not the case? Well, in general, what we've noticed is that between elections for president and then elections usually after that for governor and then elections after that for mayor, turnout tends to drop off from president to governor to mayor or municipal elections, I should say. And so it's interesting because, number one, we pretty much know because of how the longstanding 
support that New York tends to provide for Democratic candidates for president, that your vote in New York City, almost certainly the, you know, the Electoral College votes from New York will go to the Democratic candidate. Nonetheless, turnout is much greater for presidential candidates in New York City than for municipal elections, where the outcomes are often not well known beforehand, and where the impact of the policies of the mayor, for example, or the city council likely has a much greater impact on your day-to-day life than what happens at the presidential or even the, the gubernatorial level. So it's it's really interesting to see that dynamic, that the turnout tends to drop off substantially as you get to the municipal elections. So it's likely we'll see that again. However, this time, uh, I believe many, if not most, of the city council candidates are term limited. And so those will be open races. That might boost turnout. Same thing for mayor for all of the other citywide and borough-wide elected officials, uh, maybe not all of them, but certainly most of them. And also, you mentioned ranked choice voting, so I guess that will be an additional dynamic. Perhaps that, even though there might be confusion about that, I'm still not quite clear exactly how it's going to work myself, uh, but maybe that will help energize people, and they'll be excited about that to see how that's going to work and to participate in that. So that might temper the drop-off in turnout. We'll see. It's it's uh, not clear, but that's definitely been the trend that the turnout for mayor, and I'm talking just about the general election. For primary, the turnout is often much, much lower, even partly because New York City or New York State, I should say, has closed primaries. If you're not enrolled in the Democratic Party, you can't vote in the Democratic primary. And by and large, uh, for municipal elections, whoever wins the Democratic primary is almost a certainty to win the general election. So the primary is, is in a lot of ways where it's at, and that's where the turnout is lowest. And it's really a shame because the turnout would be boosted simply by allowing people, let's say, who are not enrolled in a party to vote in the, the primary election. So it, that, would, that would certainly help uh, increase turnout. So and we'll see what happens. That, that's where the, uh, the ranked choice will be in effect. It's, you know, for... Primaries and specials, and so if you're not a registered Democrat, the way New York system works, you are locked out of uh, that experiment, and most likely out of choosing who our next mayor is going to be. Oh, so ranked choice voting will only be for primaries, and the closed approach will continue to hold for that. Well, the the, the convenient thing is the the primaries are generally what actually determines. And starting next year, all the citywide primaries, as well as special elections, will be ranked choice. With the generals, it, it's presumably uh, less important since those tend not to be competitive and they're going to remain that way. So, so once we get through the primaries and for state and uh, federal races and for our generals, it, it's back to the other system. So I, I'd be thrilled if this actually gets more people to turn out and participate. But quite honestly, I, I think a lot of people are just uh, – you know, as you said, remain remain a little confused as to uh, mm-hmm. what this is going to be. Right. And the fact the fact that the primary will be in June versus September, I'm not sure what impact that would have. You know, June, assuming that we're able to 
go on vacation and move about as we have in the past this coming summer, which is, I guess, an open question, depending on what happens. It's a close question, Steve. We're not doing it. Question asked, question answered. So, you know, usually I would think, well, if it's a vote in the summer, you're not going to get as many people to participate because they're going to be doing other things. But maybe that won't be the case this coming summer. We'll see. I, I take it the June, the, the municipal primaries moved to June because that would be coincident with other primaries, uh, yep. congressional primaries. So that would help because you wouldn't have to think, oh, which primary am I voting in? Is it congressional? Is it municipal? No one other than, you know, party stalwarts are going to be thinking about that. They're just going to be confused by that. So that, if that's consolidated, I think that helps. Um, to what extent that helps, I don't know. So, Steve, before we let you out of here, I just wanted to know, what should our listeners be watching for in the upcoming months or year? Like, what's got your attention and what are you sort of interested in? Uh, will we have a vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I have to say the electoral mapping work that we do is one project that we're involved with, but we've also been for the past couple of years, actually been heavily involved in the 2020 census. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's been a a key focus of ours. And just to put in a plug for this, even though the count is complete for the census, the census is not over because number one, the census bureau right now is actively involved, probably scrambling to process all of the data that they collected in order to, provide the president, whether the current president concedes or not, he'll still be president through January 19th or 20th, I guess. And so if the legal battles allow the president to submit to Congress the population counts by state that are used for congressional apportionment by the end of the year, the Bureau, Census Bureau is scrambling to provide those numbers so that the president will be able to do that by the end of the year. That may not happen because Congress may step in. It's certainly the hope of census stakeholders and require the Census Bureau to take the time that they need and not provide those numbers until next spring. So that may change. But whatever the timing is for that, so number one, the census itself is still happening, even though the count isn't happening. And number two, the next big issue with what happens with the census data is, number one, to determine how many congressional seats each state has. That will be a big question for New York. People are talking about uh, New York may lose one seat, but it may lose two. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but we'll see. It depends on how much of all of the shenanigans around the 2020 census suppress the count. Forget about voting. That's a separate thing, although related Uh, But, you know, will we have an undercount and will we lose, you know, more congressional seats than we should? Um, And then after that, soon after that, in 2021, the process will begin to not only know how many congressional seats we have, but how to draw the lines for congressional boundaries, as well as state legislative district boundaries, and then eventually for city council boundaries and other boundaries uh, throughout the state using that census data. So the redistricting process will kick in. And we'll be closely following that and hopefully doing a lot of mapping related to that uh, to help people understand what the boundaries look like for the districts they live in now and how those boundaries might change to help inform them about the implications of that process. 
Hmm. If you were a betting man, are we going <laughs> to lose one seat or two? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not a betting man, and I really, it's, 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 this is like, this is the political scientist in me. I'm like, I don't, you know, make predictions. And then I'm always that's, like, I'll put $5 on, we lose a seat. <laughs> yeah, we can't call it. I mean, I, I so wish we had a more robust system, census system this mm-hmm. year, um, mm-hmm. because we'll feel those effects for obviously a decade. Um, but once we get those numbers out, I hope you come back and walk us through. What I'd be happy census to. because sure. we've had Senator Myrie on here talking about his involvement in the census. And obviously some of us care deeply about getting an accurate count because we want mm-hmm. resources for our state. So hopefully um, Congress will do the right thing and not rush them. Senator Myrie was a key census stakeholder and, and really did a great job in helping to get out the count, not only in his part of Brooklyn, but in, just in general. So mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully there was enough of that in terms of, really robust outreach and, and census activities locally to kind of outweigh or uh, balance out all of the craziness from the White House and uh, the difficulty in trying to get the countdown during COVID. So right. we'll see what happens. Right. In a global pandemic. Yeah. Oh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Steve Romolowski from CUNY Grad Center. Um, come back and see us again, please. I will. Can't wait. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Steve Romolowski, who's the Director of Mapping Services at CUNY's Grad Center. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be good. We'll see you next week. Wear a mask. Thanks for listening.